Hey, lab rats. Igor here. Benvenois, a crime keeper. That was French talk. I'm no Sir Mix-a-Lot, but it's about time to get the crime in check, babies. That's funky fresh. I know. Diving back into the greasy pool of cults today, which you all know I have a soft spot for. Me to poop on. We are still kind of in Unsolved Mysteries area here as we've been binging and I've gotten a lot of ideas and looked into some things, went down some uh, rabbit holes as you do. So a lot of these today are going to be older crimes, but we will get back into the newer ones next time. Potentially, it's going to be a part two. I don't know how long this will be. Maybe a mini-sode. Um, it's kind of funny because I did, you know, like 40 hours, it felt like, of research for it to be 15 minutes. So that happened. But love what I do. So let me do it. Starting with the newsflash. I heard this one on one of my favorite podcasts. This is important. Now, what I'm about to say is important, but actually is name of the podcast. It's by the Workaholics guys, Adam Devine, Kyle Newichik, and Anders Holm, and Blake Anderson, I believe all their names. It's a really good podcast. They're really funny. I love just hearing them chit-chat and uh, bust each other's bowels. So one of the guys, I think it was Anders, used to live in the area where this occurred. And I had not heard of this one, so not familiar. So I looked into it. And it is the Brown's Chicken Massacre. And I'd like to start off by saying my deep belief that chicken is meant to bring humanity together, not tear us asunder. The story about the Brown's Chicken Restaurant, they grew from one location to over 313 states, with about 100 of them being in the Chicago area. These murders happened on January 8th of 1993, in Palatine, Illinois. Two robbers entered the restaurant right before closing and murdered seven employees. And of course, it's called Brown's Chicken. It's a fast food restaurant. And these people included both of the owners, Richard and Lynn Eilenfelt. And Lynn, she had her throat slit. The rest of them had uh, I believe were shot but she was the only one whose throat was slit horrible the other employees Guadalupe Maldonado Michael C Castro who was only 16 Rico Solis who was 17 and went to the local Palatine high school Thomas Menz and Marcus Nielsen these asshats took less than $2000 which is it's crazy. For less than two grand, you took seven people's lives. They, their bodies were found in a cooler in a walk-in fridge over five hours later. Now, nothing shook out. There, was, there were a lot of suspects associated with being former employees of the restaurant, but nothing happened until 2002 when Ann Lockett came forward implicating her ex and his friend. And her ex is James Degorski and his friend is Juan Luna. And Juan was a former employee. And so they were right on that front. 
the police then were able to match some saliva that was on a piece of chicken to Luna, and Luna said that him and Degorski ordered food before forcing the group into the back and executing them, even going as far as putting on latex gloves. Didn't work, jackass. In 2007, Luna was found guilty and then divorced in Degorski followed suit two years later. The crazy thing that happened, the chain overall, their sales dropped 35% after the murders in the Chicago area. The specific location that the murders occurred in, it never reopened. You can imagine how difficult that would be to step in and get some fries, knowing what happened there. So they did close that location, but the rest of the the other franchises closed by 2009. So it was a slow decline. They just, the company said they could never get over that. It just haunted that whole area. Now, the area that the location where the restaurant was is a Chase Bank. Over the years, it's been different things. Nothing took so. And I read someone said that they grew up in that area and they have never stepped foot in the bank itself. They'll only go through the drive-through because they know what happened. It still just freaks them out that they would be walking where that happened. Now we are going to go on to what the fuck. WTF. This case comes courtesy of all my recent Unsolved Mysteries binging. And I have to say that while watching this case, I got so irate with this guy. Keep referring to this person we're talking about. His name is Cam and he legally changed his name to that. He was born with the moniker Camilla Lyman, L-Y-M-A-N. Now this guy is talking about, I don't know if he was an investigator. I kind of tuned him out because he pissed me off. He kept saying her, 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 talking to Cam. And it was obvious at this point, Cam had been living as a man, you know, changed his name to Cam, wanted to still use that pronoun. And it just, it shows to me and relays such disrespect to that person you're not even taking a few seconds to use the correct pronoun you it shows people that you care who they are and that they're being seen which is all we really want as humans if you just go by what you think it is it really does it shows that you don't you don't really care and that really bothered me so I'm assuming of course here that Cam wanted to be known as he because of the name chain and began dressing as a man for years. But uh, okay, now that I've got that out of my system, we'll move on to the story. According to unsolvedmysteries.fandom.com, Cam was born in 1932 into a Boston aristocratic family. He loved dogs so much that he bred them and was known to be in the top of the dog show circuit. Now, these are clumber spaniels, which I had never heard of clumber. No, we're not hurting them. And they're not clumsy spaniels, which is what when I first I thought clumber, I heard, thought it was clumsy. Oh, it's a clumsy spaniel. Well, that's adorable and kind of sad. Not true. Next thing that you have to think of here is best in show. Pick a reference. Mine that I went with is now tell me, now tell me, which one of these dogs would you want to have as your wide receiver on your football team? look up the reference. Cam lived with his parents on their 100-acre estate and was said to be a recluse and never dated or married. Didn't have a lot of friends, no big social circuit, which is fine, homebody. 
By 1973, both his parents were deceased, and his sister sadly noticed the home was not being taken care of. Cam, around this point, bought animal steroids, which he took himself, and from 1978 to 85, he began his transformation into Cam. 1981. Enter George O'Neill, a fellow dog aficionado. He was hired to be the estate's caretaker, Cam's transportation arranger, and got to the point in a fairly short amount of time of gaining his power of attorney and was his only known confidant. Cam became more bizarre in behavior. Things like, you know, taking jewels, pockets full of jewels and cash to go to the grocery store. Now, you know, in his defense, maybe it's like he's kind of out of touch with things. Maybe he doesn't know in the time that he's just been around his estate if you can pay for a head of lettuce with a ruby. I'm not sure, but it was a thing that happened. I mean, not he didn't actually pay the ruby. I made that up, but... 1984, George sold Cam's family estate and purchased a 40-acre one in Rhode Island. But by 1987, no one had heard from Cam. That next year, in 88, his family called the police and asked that the law firm that handled the family trust investigate. So Charles Allen was that investigator, and he went and talked to George and found out George had become the sole beneficiary to the estate. George told Allen that they got into a fight, him and Cam, and he hadn't seen him since July of 87. And then he just believes Cam went to Europe for a quote-unquote sex change. I prefer to call them or sex-affirming surgeries, but, you know, that was the vernacular of the times then. Oh, and besides that, he, uh, Charles found that there was between three and five million of the fortune gone. The property was not searched at that time for Cam's body, and it wasn't until 1997 when his body was found in a septic tank. Now, George was never indicted for this murder, but in 2003, he was found guilty of embezzling 15000 from Cam, but only received, get this, one year probation and $450 court costs and died in 2011. So I guess they really couldn't tie anything to him and... I just, what really struck me on this is usually people with the monies get the answers, but it just, it was a, like I said, it was a different time and, and he being a bizarre type of person only in that he was reclusive and he carried around jewels and cash in large amounts. And then on top of that, people really don't get when you go through something like that. They don't get when you change, especially then and even before then. So hopefully there will be something that comes to that, but I, I really think that George was it and maybe he had other people with him, but he sounded like he didn't need other people. He could just take care of it himself. Now, we are going on to the main event here. I'm gonna, I've stumbled upon 10 from Thrillist, 10 of the top cults that you've never heard of. I thought I'd do half of them. And what got me, besides seeing that article, what got me kind of going down that avenue again was, of course, the grandfather of true crime reenactment shows, Robert Stack. I was watching one and it was about Nelson DeCloud and I was blown away. I'd never heard of this cult, so that just led me down 
to looking into to that cult and then I stumbled upon others. So here we are. So about Nelson DeCloud, I got this from medium.com. Nelson DeCloud was an ex-police officer, pedophile, turd. And as we get into his background, let's go ahead and just look at it through the lens of the cult leader checklist, shall we? One, did Nelson say he was one of God's sons? Check. Did he isolate people from their non-believing family members? Double check. Did he prey on young children? Triple check. Or as I call it, the turd trifecta. Now, Unsolved Mysteries episode focused on Julie Cooper, which she it was like six when her family moved to this compound, their farm that Nelson the Clown was part of, or Nelson the Clown. Julie says she was 10 years old when she was made to watch cult members have sex with Dickhead DeCloud. Julie was then made to stand alone in a field for eight hours until she acquiesced to having sex with him. In a field, cold, scared, and I think it was even like in the middle of the night. When another member stood up to him about this incident, that person was humiliated in front of everyone, which made Julie feel completely responsible. She then became another one of DeCloud's prisoners and tried to escape when she was 15, only to be caught, beaten, and affixed to his side. He would not let her out of his sight. Seven years later, in 92, the compound needed some satellite repair. My first thought to that was, what? How do you go from making your own butter to needing a satellite? Okay, whatever. So Julie's job in this was to arrange for the repair person to come out. She did, she talked to the repair person his name was Tim Santi, who got the heebie-jeebies by being there, picked up on the vibe that something ain't right. Two days later, she arranged for Tim to get her in the middle of the night and was finally able to confide all her horror to someone else. The cult concluded that Tim was involved because, you know, she's gone, he was just there, he was an outsider. So they went to his home dressed as cops. And they got the address wrong, so they went to his brother's home. The bros weren't buying that it was, you know, legit cops, probably due to nothing about their store-bought costumes, screamed professional law enforcement, and Tim and Julie went right to the IRL police. DeCloud knew the jig was up, and he plied his family into buses and fled. They were finally located in 1993 at another compound in San Angelo, Texas, where deranged DeCloud tried to make his exit via a second-story window. What a puss. 1994. He was found guilty and sentenced to 220 years, dying in 2014. Julie and Tim went on to marry and have a family. She overcame that. It wasn't, it didn't define her. She went on, she found happiness, which is great. I had never heard of this guy and really didn't get too much. I really didn't care about their beliefs are because it was all a pack of lies anyway. So if we go on to what the Thrillist has as the first five cults out of the 10 that they say you've never heard of, I actually have heard a couple of these. So what I'm going to do is break it down from the name, the code name I gave them, talk about what the info on when it was founded, their belief systems, and if they're together or not with a nay or a yay. Now, depending on what's going on in their history and whatnot with the cult, I'm going to add a few different things. But that's basically what we're going to do. So number one, the Aetherius Society. 
codename Mild Alien Hippies. I got this information from the Thrillist, but also why not go to the Ethereus.org uh, and hear it right from them. And also DrGeorgeKing.org, which is very eye-opening. You'll see here in a second when we start talking about the timeline. you got to look at it. So, founded in the 1950s from a former British taxi driver, Dr. George King. And I will not be calling him Dr. King. I hope for obvious reasons. In 1919, George was born in England. He claims to have healed his mother at age 11 when he was visited by an elevated being for the first time. Yes, there's others. And he then obtained a scholarship around the same time to the local grammar school. Don't know if they're connected. I'm assuming he was at the age when he would, you know, be there anyway. But, you know, who knows? Maybe that was uh, bestowed upon him from E.T. 1937. He left home at the age of 18, moved to London. Two years later, he took a non-combat role in the war where he would use his psychic abilities to help locate trapped bodies in the rubble. Again, from his timeline, not like anybody else's. No year was given for this, but he was visited by yet another being. 1940s, he started practicing yoga eight hours a day for a decade. I can barely sit and like be on a computer without wanting to get up, whatever. 1952, was a driver for the state funeral of King George, got into stunt driving and motorcycles. Next year, 53, established a small healing circle where two dead dudes spoke through him. His timeline. And then, you know, the years go on. He gets more into yoga. Then in 54, he said he received the command, prepare yourself. You are to become the voice of interplanetary parliament. Then, you know, he goes into a 65-hour meditation, gets his first transmission from Mars Sector 6, made physical contact with the Master Jesus, who emerged from a spacecraft, and he had a revelation that by his own committee that he had come from Mars 100 years ago. And it, and it goes on from there. He died in 1997. So that's a little bit about, you know, the background of the myth, the man, the weirdo. Now we're going to go on to the belief systems of the Aetherius Society. They believe that they, are co they have cosmic masters, primarily from Venus and Saturn, that control the fate of humanity. They focus on prayer to spiritually charge the earth, making way for the next master to come. And he will come in a flying saucer armed with uber powerful magic that puts the combined materialistic might of all armies to shame. So suck it, you Prada and Kate Spade legions. According to their website, there are 19 holy mountains of the world, mostly in the UK. Operation Starlight is a mission that founder Doc Dr. George used to place a powerful charge of cosmic energy into 18 of the 19 mountains around the world, where each received a different energy. George goes on to say that mankind as a whole, through wrong thought and action, brought about a distortion of the subtle energy fields surrounding this planet. This means that the vital energies coming from the cosmos are, to a large extent, reflected back into space. Operation Starlight was designed to relieve some of that problem. Together or not, yay, they are. You can go to the Aetherius.org website and they'll tell you 
email them and they'll let you know when the next group is getting together in whatever mountain. It's not bad. You go and you pray and, you know, maybe do a little yoga or whatnot in a beautiful setting with other like-minded people. I think that I would feel a little out of touch if they had a lot of, like, alien stories and I didn't. So it'd be like, you know, the 40-year-old virgin scenario where I'd be making stuff up um, and they would call me on it. Number two, the Honohana Sampogyo. I'm not saying it again. Code name: the Bunyan Braille Bunch i.e. the foot reading cult. I got most of this from grunge.com and of course from the Thrillist. They were founded by Dr. Hogan, H-O-G-A-N, Fukunaga, millionaire, and he was born Tiroyoshi Fukunaga and he realized in 1987 he was the reincarnation of both Jesus and Buddha. Win-win. He decided to begin a movement where he and other cult members read the souls of people's feet, like a turn-on palm reading. These Tootsie Bears are then instructed to attend Muchos Dinero's training sessions and or purchase a high-priced scroll, ornaments said to ward off evil, or they may cure illness, sin, break family curses, which of course can cost thousands of dollars. Now I'm gonna admit something. If they had taken a look at my bunions and told me what I wanted to hear, I may have paid out for a trinket or two if I was promised I would not succumb to the basketball shape that is a pox on the women of my family. Their belief systems? They believe in the ability to diagnose issues by examining feet and they say if they don't do it, if it's not done properly, you could die. They also believe that short toes relate to a short temper, fat toes to a life filled with good fortune. So me, I would have a bad temper, but good luck. It costs $900 for each inspection. You know, they would have their own members uh, pay for. And shockingly, the next thing we're going to talk about with them is fraud. 1999, they faced charges for things like telling a man who was scared he was contracted HIV his life had always been bad and is certain to be diagnosed with AIDS. But for the mere sum of $6,000, he could take part in a session that would help him. He, of course, did this along with purchasing a scroll for $34,000. Okay, so obvious pun here. He ended up footing the bill. So going on to the next unraveling is death. Four members died during training, like one man falling from a second-story bathroom during a five-day training program, and finding out that the fire department had responded to 12 such calls in five years. I don't know what they're not doing or doing at these, but, you know, just let them have Chipotle for the love. Don't be having them bring in some hothead burrito shit. Now, Funky Fukunaga's response was... All I did was deliver the Vox Day, voice of God. Why is it called fraud? And saying it was a freedom of religion thing. Old Fook got 12 years for $1.5 million in fraud. The cult itself had to pay out $926,000 to 16 people who were told they would get cancer unless they joined into the foot fund. Together or not? Nay. Now, the next one we're going to talk about is Chen Tao. 
or Chen Dao. The code name is Scientology Light. Same aliens, less conviction. They also are known as the True Way Cult and God's Salvation Church. This information I got from a paper, it looks like someone did a research paper, at d-n for Nancy, b for boy, dot info. The founding of this cult was by Han Ming Chen, or Teacher Chen, as he liked to be called. He was born in 1955, and he grew up the son of a farmer, merchant, and his housewife, as most women were in the 50s, that didn't stress religion in their home. It wasn't a focus, and, and Chen considered himself an atheist most of his life. He went on to get a BA in political science and a master's in social science, and he parlayed this into an associate professor position in pharmacy at a junior college. So I guess he couldn't make it a varsity college. 1992. Said he was instructed by God to pursue a religious life. He read various texts, became a student of a UFO religious group. He became disillusioned after paying so much money to his teacher and felt one shouldn't get wealthy off of God's word. In 1995, he began the Soul Light Resurgence Association, or SLRA, and then that changed to Chen Tao when they moved to United States. In 1997, they moved to California and established themselves as God's Salvation Church and drew some media attention when Chen and some others were searching for the Jesus of the West. But they placed personal ads in the paper to no avail. Their belief systems... Chen Dao theology is a mixture of Chinese folk, religion, Buddhism, Christianity, Taoism, UFO beliefs, and scientific theories. They also believe the universe is 4.5 trillion years old. The solar system was created by a nuclear war. Three souls for everyone. You may have seen the uh, meme that I posted on the Crime Keeper Facebook page. You get three souls. You get three souls. We all get three souls. Believes that humanity was rescued five times by God coming down from a flying saucer. That North America is pure land of God. That there will be a great tribulation of 1999, which the Prince song was about, obviously. The human, re the human incarnation of God will have all the physical features of Chen, but he will speak all languages, walk through walls, and be able to replicate himself as much as necessary to greet everyone simultaneously. Which is a really tall order, so I'm guessing it's a woman. Mo Media, Mo Problems. December 1997, a 16-year-old member named Nan Hua Chung lived with her father and uncle, uh, but mommy, who was back in, in Taiwan, she didn't care for where the group was heading. And so when the father passed away, the mom wanted her daughter home. Also, there were rumors that they were going to commit mass suicide. So she was understandably very concerned. So she flew to LA, got in touch with the police, saying her daughter was being held against her will. This was supposedly not the case, but due to her being a minor, she went back to Taiwan with her mother. Now, side note here. Remember when I said that Chen abhorred religious leaders that gained wealth from, the God, from God's word? Somehow, he managed to purchase a home in Garland, Texas, after already leaving his teaching position. 
Interesting. Together or not, I'm really unsure. One article says they disbanded after a 1998 prophecy didn't come to fruition. The paper that I read says they're still practicing. Oh, and that prediction you asked? God would appear on one TV channel in North America, even if you didn't have cable, at 12.01 a.m. on 3.31.98. Number four, Order of the Solar Temple, code name, Masonic Alien People's Temple, a.k.a. Order du Temple Solaire. Now, this one is the big downer. It is in, because as you know, I mentioned People's Temple. So it's the hard one. The next one though, the fifth one, is my favorite. So we're gonna take a dive into some unfortunately well-worn cult territory and then we're gonna move on to something a little more fun. I got most of this information from Film Daily and Vox Space. The Order of the Solar Temple was founded in Geneva, Switzerland in 1984 by Joseph DiMambro and Luc Giret. DiMambro, he was raised Catholic but found more interest in occultism, then became a member of a cult, which was the old ancient and mystical Order Rosicrucius, and was like, hey, I can do this. So he established the Golden Way Foundation. This allowed fellow occult enthusiasts the ability to connect when, and that is where he met Luke. Luke was studying medicine, but gave that up for spiritualism and homeopathy. DeMombro had been described as a confident trickster who made a successful career out of masquerading as a psychologist. I don't know about you, but it seems like that seems to sum up most cult leaders. They're good at masquerading as something else when they're real fucked up. Belief systems. Similar to Chen Dao, early Christianity, UFOs, New Age, and Freemason rituals, which is a new thing thrown into the pult. The main goal of this religion, to recreate the 14th century Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn and the Templar due to the impending apocalypse. DeMombro was a member of Knights Templar in a previous life, and his daughter Emmanuel was the cosmic child. He deemed her that. The social structure of this period in the 14th century was the best ever and needs to be in order again to bring harmony and control. Period. Death is an illusion as life continues on other planets. Mostly Uranus. Jesus is the solar god king. It's totally acceptable to charge members fees so the rest can live in luxury as well as tell couples they are not cosmically compatible so they can sex them now. Also okay to use projectors to be used in their scheme of illusions. The downfall. It was a pretty horrific one. So I mentioned about the projectors. I'm assuming that they were doing something with showing uh, in their services or rituals that look, you know, here's how we communicate and look how awesome we are. And one of the members was selected, told you hang these projectors up, don't say anything, you know, you're in on the ruse now, the scheme. He didn't feel right about it, so he told other people. And because of this, DeMombro got really irate. And what also didn't help is that this same man and his wife named their son, Emmanuel, 
that's the same of his daughter, the Cosmic Child, and that just did him in. So unfortunately, in 1994, DeMombro declared that their baby was the Antichrist and was sacrificed along with the parents. So they were murdered. A year later, in 95, the members committed mass suicide while others were found shot or smothered and all in their ceremonial robes. The total for this was almost 50. Now, this was set in motion, the suicides and murders, because DeMambro's son started to tell others how full of shit the cult was, and they saw for themselves how DeMambro and Luke were living off of them. Like I said, it goes into Jim Jones territory with people being poisoned if they refused to do it themselves. And DeMambro's own children were among them. Together or not, yay, I wish it was nay, but with a frowny face. This next and last one that we'll do today is my favorite and is a little more fun. They're called the Freedomites. Hadn't heard of them. I codenamed them the Buck Naked Anarchists. I got a lot of this information from Wikipedia. They have so much more history than the others. The others weren't around very long. This group has been around since the 1900s. We'll discuss whether or not they're still around, but their history is really interesting. And it really feels to me more like a how a lot of religions start, but I have my own theories as we'll get to with why it is they're considered a cult. The Freedomites, 1902, Saskatchewan, when various religious groups came to Canada from Russia for freedom to worship. They were initially known as God's people or simple Christians, but became Dukobertsits, D-U-K-H-O-B-O-R-T-S-Y, or spirit wrestlers. Now, the spirit wrestler part was actually given to them by an archbishop as a mocking name, implying they wrestled against spirituality that they didn't want to do God's will. So they're wrestling with Jesus. In 1799, they were exiled to Finland. First of many resettlements or exiles. They were oppressed in Russia for their stance against war in the military. And in 1802, were encouraged to resettle by the emperor. He said uh, he wanted to prevent these heretics from contaminating the population of the heartland with their ideas. When Nicholas I came to power, he tried to force them to conform by making it difficult or impossible for them to meet and said they needed to convert. If they didn't, they would be sent to the Russian army, Caucasus, or be sent to the Transcaucasian province. There were 5,000 that were resettled to Georgia in the 1840s, not the state here in the States. There were various leaders from 1841, starting with the father, Ilarion Kamikov, then his son, Peter, then on to Peter's wife, Lucrya Govanova, which that just sounds like a Ben Stiller name that he made up. By the time she came into power, the group had 20,000 strong. She died in 1886. By then, the group had become vegetarian and found Leo Tolstoy's philosophy similar to their own. Since there were no other family of Lucaria, crisis emerged as the next leader, which led to a schism in the group. They split into the large party and the small party. 1887, Russia received so much negative attention internationally for how they treated the group 
they agreed to allow them to leave the country with three conditions. They didn't come back, they'd go at their own expense, and any imprisoned leaders have to serve out their time before they join them. I mean, the Russian government's not known for being strict bollocks, you know? This led them to Canada, since the initial settling Cyprus couldn't handle the size of the group. So 6,000 emigrated in 1899 in the Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta areas. The Cyprus group joined them, and by then it totaled 7,500, including the now-released 110 leaders. Not only did the Quakers assist them financially to move, but Tolstoy himself did via his royalties from the novel Resurrection, along with money from his fat cat friends that ended up being half of the immigration fund. Now, their neighbors were not waiting for them and running to them with open arms. They were very suspicious of their communal lifestyle, refusal to allow their children in school, and their anti-war view because it was war during World War I. The faction of the group, known as the Sons of Freedom, used nude marches and midnight arson, which caused a lot of upset with the fact that the women may or may not be fully clothed while going about their daily responsibilities. Then they ended up losing their own land because they registered it in the group's name, and the Minister of the Interior told them they had to individually register. Well, that's not their belief. They were a group. They owned the land. It was communal. So they ended up losing a third of their land back to the crown. Belief systems. I'm sure from what that little paragraph that I sent you can, uh, that I just went over, you can surmise, but let's hit some high points of their beliefs. The Bible alone was not enough to reach divine revelation and that getting caught up in doctrine can interfere with faith, so formal rituals are unnecessary since God is inside us all. I don't know, that sounds kind of okay. The goal was to internalize a living spirit of God so that God's spirit would be revealed in each person. Okay. Communal living, nudity, and anarchy. Go on. Demonstrating against society's materialism in the nude. So let's play that game where you say, you know, you know the game where you say in bed after everything. Well, let's do that but with in the nude. 1920s and 30s. Burned and bombed public buildings to demonstrate how much they hate the government in the nude. Ate bread, borscht with food symbols being bread, salt and water in the nude. And that they were pacifists in the nude. Together or not, yay. By 2011, it was stated there were approximately 2,300 people in Canada who still identified with this religion, but only around 50 in Russia. So, which of these cults would you join? Do you even agree that they're all cults? Like I said before, the Freedomites give me the most feel of a true religious movement, but I'm thinking that the tendency to add fire and dynamite is most likely the reason it was labeled a cult. Oh, and the fact that they weren't shy about showing what their non-alien lord gave them, body-wise, in the all-natural arena, freaked the fuck out of people almost as much as the buildings going boom when they were around. In the nude. That's all for me today, lab rats. I'm being beckoned into the dungeon once again by Queen V with the sights and smells of the salty fish head goodness. Remember, everyone must find their truth, and mine is Abby Normal. 
If you enjoy the experience and experiments of Murder Lab, go to Facebook, Instagram, and MurderLabMedia.com for updates. Share with your friends, those you created in a lab or not, as long as they can subscribe and listen, we'll take it. Murder Lab is available on Google Play and iTunes. The RSS feed is on MurderLabMedia.com for you to plug into your podcast app. We can always use more lab rats. One, two, one, two, and buckle my shoe. Yeah.